It's Thursday night, and this is Farage at Large. Live from Brixham, please welcome your host, Nigel Farage. Good evening. We're in Brixham tonight, the historic fishing port. It's Farage at Large. We're going to be talking fishing, farming. Has Brexit worked for South Devon? We've got the local MP here with us. We're going to give him a good grilling. We'll also talk on the national picture. Boris said last night he'd crashed the car. The question is, is he a write-off? to be here in beautiful Brixham, an historic fishing port for centuries. People have fished out of this port, very important port uh, to some, perhaps even the birthplace of trawling. And it's still a very important fishing community, but it's also, of course, got farming as well all around it. Now, a few years ago, there was a little thing called a referendum. And the people of Brixham decided by a thumping majority to vote to leave the European Union which I must say I thought was a rather sensible thing to do. <laughs> However, today we will assess how is Brexit working out for the fishing industry? Did they get a good deal? How is Brexit working out for the farming industry? And if people are not satisfied, what can we do to improve upon that? We'll also talk about national politics, but first, we went out earlier today around town to see what local people think about the town in which they live. things happening in Brixham. It seems I don't know, it's one of those places where nearly every day there's something happening here. It's a very, very lively, really, in a quiet way. <laughs> it's, it's very busy. I mean, people don't appreciate it. It's, it's actually a working harbour. It is a working town. Um, you can come and get fresh fish. There's lots of nice restaurants. It's uh, not very commercialised, so it's not like a seasidey place. Lots of lovely walks. It's just... Nice place to be. It's the beauty of it as well. You know, you go down to the breakwater and it's stunning and you can go swimming, feed the swans. There were dolphins in the harbour a few weeks ago. Yeah. Just a mum and her baby dolphin while we were just standing watching the band play in the harbour. So it's it's like kind of a postcard place to live. It's so relaxed, it's, it's just nice. Everyone's nice. You meet so many nice tourists that come down throughout summer months and it is, yeah, it's a delight to live here. There's, there's the community and everyone sort of looks out for one another yeah. and it's, it's just nice, they're just nice to each other. And there's a lot more people come down here now since, um, since the pandemic. I think it's good for people to come into the area and bring, bring their skills down here. If they're doing that or retire, a lot, a lot of people are doing all sorts of things for different reasons now. Well, I've got to tell you, I've never been anywhere in my life where the local 
residents were more enthusiastic about the place in which they live. And I have to apologise to all of you because after that clip, a lot more people will be moving down here. I've no doubt <laughs> about it. And we're going in, over the course of the next hour to come back to that harbour, to fishing, to how the community is doing, to what the difficulties and problems are, and what we can improve—you know—really improve upon. We'll talk about farming, livestock in particular, our new trade deals with Australia and elsewhere, going to be a good thing or a bad thing. But we have to begin. And I'm very pleased to say we've got the local member of parliament, Anthony. You're here, Anthony Magnall, with us today. He's in the hot seat, and so good for him for turning up this evening. That's very, very important. Sarah Wollaston has another engagement. <laughs> <laughs> she was busy changing political parties yet again. <laughs> and this community, this community, were utterly betrayed by the previous Member of Parliament. She was elected as a Conservative, she became an out-and-out -out Ramona, and she went off into Liberal Democrats and Change UK, and goodness knows where else she went. Uh, the BBC, I mean, I think they were really looking for her to become Saint Sarah. Um, she was so often on the television. Well, Wollaston is long gone. I doubt she'd be welcome back in this Conservative club in Brixham in a hurry. Anthony's the man, but Anthony, uh, I've got to talk to you about the big picture tonight. You were there last night at the 1922 committee with traditional banging of lid, you know, desks and all a bit schoolboyish, really, but hey. Um, but I know that everything that goes on inside that room is utterly confidential and you would not be allowed to share with this audience or indeed GB News what went on <laughs> in that meeting. But I do rather feel... Folks, we've got him surrounded tonight, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> you're a new MP. Yeah. You're a young MP. You were a Brexiteer. Mm -hmm. You are very much somebody that espouses conservative ideas. How was it in that room last night? Well, I think enough has already been said about what went on in I that room. I haven't heard a word you've said about it. And I think Laura, Laura Kunzberg tweeted it last night. But you, you started off your show tonight talking about, you know, whether or not the car was a write-off. I think it's yeah. time that we think about kicking the tyres, resetting the sat-nav and checking the oil. You know, it's time that we get right. that car back on the road. We make sure that we are going in the right direction. You know, I think people are understandably angry because when people start losing faith in their politicians, then the whole thing is brought down. And we have to do better. Every single member of parliament needs to do better because if we lose the trust and the faith of I'm our constituents... I'm not really interested at the moment in every other member of parliament. <laughs> Fascinating though you and all Fair enough. are. Yes, Boris did say he'd crashed the car and it was the nearest thing you'll ever get from him to an apology. You know, he's not, he's not the most humble of people. The question is, is he a write-off? And, and, I, and I do want, by the way, you at home, tell me, and by the way, listen first, but tell me, gbviews at gbnews.uk or tweet at gbnews, is Boris now a write-off? I don't doubt the car mm. needs new tyres. I don't doubt the car needs an oil change. The question really is, does it need a change of driver? No. It doesn't. And Boris has always, the Prime Minister, has always had the ability of surprising people. He's made a mistake, he knows that, but it's not a write-off for the Prime Minister. He's well, still one mistake, potential. one He's mistake still, was on. Owen Patterson. One yep. mistake was Owen Patterson. But I wouldn't mind betting there are one or two people in this room who voted Conservative in 2019 who are about to see their taxes rise quite significantly come next spring. The highest tax burden since Clement Attlee was Prime Minister 
in the late 1940s. I'll bet you there are people in this room that didn't think by voting Conservative we'd effectively get the Green Party, um, who I know in the centre of Totnes are quite popular, but maybe not so much in Brixham. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a local joke, sorry. Um, <laughs> We went out today, earlier, with our camera. Not only did we ask people what they thought of Brixham, which was glowing, by the way, yeah. but we also asked people how they now felt about Boris Johnson. Let's have a little quick look mm -hmm. at what your constituents said to us on the street at random. I think you made a mistake with the Brexit. You know, we shouldn't have came out with any deal. It should have been a no deal at the start, and then we might have had a chance. I've lost faith in Boris Johnson because of all the promises that he made. And recently, that's all gone down. Um, so I would think that Labour's going to come in this time. And with the COVID and the, the actual billions spent on this track and trace, that wasn't, wasn't as effective as it should have been for the amount of billions spent on it. I think that's bad. I think he's been dealt a difficult hand. Yeah. And I think he's tried his best, but I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of him in the world. The one thing that I feel that's come from the government is the lack of trust that I feel now that I never did before. I do think that it's now getting to the point where perhaps we should sort of reconsider. <laughs> well, in their own very polite way, mm -hmm. uh, they were your constituents in Conservative voting Brixham, and there is a sense that this man's had his best days, that this man was there for a purpose. Uh, Mrs May had completely, completely messed the Brexit deal up. We would have finished up with a half-in, half-out, never-never-land. And in some ways, I was very instrumental in Boris getting the job because I got rid of Mrs May, and I'm quite proud of that, in those <laughs> European elections. When, so are we. Well, you know, well, no, when places like this voted Brexit Party in a huge way and we got rid of her. Yeah. So I, nothing I say is meant with malice. You know, on a personal level, I like him. Mm -hmm. He's a fun person to be with. I've just felt Anthony for some time he's more of a cheerleader than a leader. Um, and I, I put it to you that if he stays as your leader, you're going to limp on, and your popularity as a party decline in the polls, unless you can completely redefine. We know about the Brexit mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. The big-ticket stuff's been done. Yep. There are battles to fight, it seems to me, over Northern Ireland mm -hmm. and fishing, mm -hmm. and they're battles that I know that you want to yep. be uh, engaged in. But can he actually get that fizz back? You know, the, one, the one thing about the Conservative Party is that when the leader isn't up to the job, it's utterly brutal in dispatching them. And I take note that it wasn't particularly brutal with Theresa May. It took its time to get there, but eventually we got there, and, and thanks no, for the help no, on it. No, I got rid but, of it, not uh, you. you know, I'll, 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 I'll take that. But it's, and I wasn't there at the time. But I think the point is if the Prime Minister can't deliver, then he has to answer to the 1922 committee and all the backbenchers of the Conservative Party. If we feel we're not, he's not delivering, then those are the people he is going to have to face. And that that's the problem. You know, the letters will go in. For the moment, I think you also have to look at the positives. You know, fastest vaccine, fastest growth, now the fourth most attractive country in the world to invest in. Yeah. There are a number of positives here, but, you know, we're still in this pandemic. We're still coming out of this, and I think people are naturally frustrated, and they do want more results. I'm disappointed Brixham has not got the money that it needs to develop that harbour further. We've got to go further, and we've got to build that trust. Well, levelling up is interesting. Yeah. Levelling up is interesting, because levelling up is always used to talk about the Midlands and the North. Actually, Britain's coastal communities, yep, Britain's fishing ports need levelling up because they've had a miserable few decades. Yep. The common fisheries policy was a disaster for places like this. And we've still got 103 French boats yep. 
fishing up to the six-mile line off Brixham and right along this Channel coast. Uh, Anthony, how much frustration... And I've got a couple of fishermen on later with me mm -hmm. on Talking Pints, because... I thought maybe they'd moderate over a pint, you know, but, 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 but perhaps I'm wrong. How much frustration is there, do you feel, as an MP here amongst the fishing community? Um, just on the first bit, on the levelling up side, it's enormously frustrating because the South West always gets overlooked. This, has been, this hasn't been something in the last 20 years, it's been something in the last 70 years. Yeah. And then in the Chancellor's budget, we didn't secure the £20 million that we need for this harbour to support our fishermen who do what they do. So we have to go again and we have to fight harder. And that's my own fault. You know, I have to double down here and I have to fight a hell of a lot harder to get the money into this area. I think when it comes to fishing and what we're trying to secure for the most valuable fishing port in England, we need to go further and we need to go faster. It's great there's £100 million, but £100 million from DEFRA is a scratch on the surface. It's, we not don't enough. The fishing it's, it's not like, enough. We don't want money. Yeah, we, you want, want we want a bit of fish you, in our own waters you, and stop the French taking what you they're taking be able to, on our six-month I agree. Line. I agree. So we can do that. We can do that, but we have to build up our fleets, we have to build up our ports, and we have to be prepared for the negotiations that we take on next year, and we have to be prepared. In 2025, when this transition period, and sorry to use the word transition period again, we have to be able to make sure, we are saying to the French, that there will be no, no, no European vessels within our 12-mile limit. The That's job, the and the, the job, and by the way, the job of all backbench coastal MPs where there are vibrant fishing communities is to get the Secretary of State for death to make that point, to make that right. commitment, well, and we hold their feet to the fire. I've got no disagreement with anyone who wants to see European vessels out of our waters. Voters of Totnes, residents here in this lovely, lovely port, your local Member of Parliament has pledged to you that he will campaign unequivocally to get the French boats out of our six to 12 miles so that we can fish exclusively up to 12 miles. I want you to thank him for coming along, taking part this morning, but I also want you to hold him to his promise, please. Yeah. Thank you very much. Now, it's time for my What the Farage moments, those stories that I see that make me really, make my hair stand up on end, and one of them, I don't want to scare you, but we have all been told, haven't we, that the vaccine was the saviour. Provided we had the vaccine, life could go on as normal, nothing to worry about. Well, let's take Gibraltar, which, of course, was part of the Southwest region when we were members of the European Union. Gibraltar has arguably the highest vaccine rate of any country in the world. They've pretty much all been double-vaxxed on Gibraltar. And yet, there is now a spike in infections in Gibraltar. Uh, Covid cases in Gibraltar are certainly three times, perhaps even nearly four times, what they are in the United Kingdom. And the Gibraltarian government have decided that Christmas is cancelled. So, you see, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying the vaccine doesn't have benefits. And I do think... The evidence is clear that if you've had the vaccine, you are far less likely to get seriously ill, far less likely to be hospitalised and far less likely to die. But I'm beginning to feel that we've been sold a bit of a pup in believing, just by getting double jabbed, that life could continue as normal. The Gibraltarians have lost Christmas. I hope and pray passionately that Boris doesn't take away Christmas from us again this year. But I do worry with the National Health Service that already has got a waiting list of almost six million people. 
and with colds and flu now much more rife than they were this time last year, I am fearful that something unpleasant could happen over the course of the next few weeks. And my other what the Farage moment, well, I've kept quiet for the last few days as a lifelong cricket lover, albeit Kent, my home county. Uh, but, you know, you can't avoid Yorkshire cricket if you love cricket with, you know, all through my life, the Geoffrey Boycotts, who's been on this show, by the way, uh, and other great personalities. And this man, Azim Rafiq, who has increasingly uh, not just said he was uh, treated in a nasty way in the locker room, uh, but has tried not just to point the finger at one or two players, but I felt with his evidence that he gave yesterday in Parliament, attempted almost to destroy English cricket. And the response to this has been, oh, it's been wall-to-wall. -wall. You know, I heard Stephen Fry on the BBC this morning and the whole game's got to change. I've even heard senior lawyers saying, all banter must stop in locker rooms. I mean, without banter, I wouldn't play any team sport, would you? Um, and it may well be that some beastie things were said to Azeem, and I'm not saying they weren't. Uh, equally, had he had ginger hair, that had given him a tough time. Had he been fat, he'd have had a tough time. Thin, he'd have had a tough time. Short or tall, sports teams are like that. Not all of that behaviour is acceptable. Some of it is bullying, some of it steps over the line. But I wondered why Rafiq was going so aggressively at the whole English game. Well, I've been told from more than one source, and I'm sure it's not true, that he's got some quite significant gambling debts. And that actually the Players Association allegedly helped bail him out to the tune of tens of thousands of pounds. And that to fight a case on this scale, to get the compensation he was going to get from Yorkshire Cricket Club, perhaps even the book deal that would follow, now that he was this great hero for equality and racial justice in this country, that that might have been the answer. Now, of course, I'm sure it's not true. But what is really interesting is that Azim Rafiq has been revealed tonight to have put out some of the most unpleasant and vilest anti-Semitic tweets that you have ever seen. The biter has been bit. People in glass houses should not throw stones. If we're going to cancel people because of unpleasant things they've said in the past, frankly, we'll end up cancelling just about everybody. Right, in a moment. In a moment, we'll move on to local issues. We'll talk about farming here in South Devon, what the threats and opportunities that are coming from Brexit are. See you in a moment. Welcome back. Now, some audience reaction from home. Someone on Twitter says, this is about Boris, you know, we, he, he, he admitted he crashed the car. I'm asking whether he's a write-off. Uh, well, someone on Twitter says, like a lot of things, he didn't really think it through, did he? Hmm. <laughs> Food for thought on that one. Another one on Twitter says, not a write-off, but is hurtling down a one-way street in the wrong direction. <laughs> Funny how the local MP's left already, isn't it, really? <laughs> James says to me, the man is a clown, he's no leader, he's the worst PM ever. Well, that may be a little bit harsh, James, but people are angry and upset and frustrated. Jonathan says, let's just say, Boris and his government's performance ain't something to celebrate. The government is stuttering and terribly weak. I don't even want to consider 
the Labour alternative. I'm just hoping and praying that Boris transforms the old banger to a Maserati ASAP. <laughs> On Twitter I get, I don't think it'll bluff out. Well, you may be right. Um, look, uh, the truth is, Boris needs replacing ASAP. The truth is, Howard Wilson once said a week's a long time in politics, and in, and in a couple of weeks, Boris's popularity has fallen very, very sharply. Now, to deal with local issues, farming matters in South Devon, farming matters across the whole of the southwest of England. I'm joined by David Merrins and Anthony Rue, beef and arable farmer, beef farmer. So, guys, now, I could say a welcome to the programme, by the way. I could say farmers always moan. Farmers always say everything's dreadful, but actually be doing quite well. As I understand it, meat prices are pretty good at the moment, yeah? Um, well, the price of beef in the, during the past, say, 12 months has gone up by about 10%. But we are currently being told that um, in agricultural inflation is over 22%. What, of, 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 of goods you're buying in? Yes, well, I'll give you one example. This time last year, you could buy a tonne of fertiliser at £200. That same tonne of fertiliser today is £600. So where is 10% increase in the price of a product going to go to buying towards fertiliser? OK, so prices are good. I know lamb prices equally are... are well, lamb prices are excellent, Are, yes. are really good. Oh, yeah, better, yeah. But, but again, similar problems. The, 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 the cost the, of production the, is rising quicker. Yeah, I, I get that indeed. I, I mean, I mean, you is know, that the same as that, really? The cost, of, the cost of production is the problem. We're just being squeezed harder at a higher price. That's so does this mean down the line that food prices simply have to rise in the shops? It seems inevitable. If costs don't drop again, yes. And those costs, you're reliant, I guess, with fertilisers and things, most of this is imported, yeah? Uh, the fertiliser wouldn't... Some, some imported, some... some yeah, imported. mostly imported, but there's one company that makes it in the UK at the moment. That's the big company up in the North East, exactly, isn't it? One company. Which, ironically, is accused, of course, of producing too much carbon dioxide um, in the production of it. Now, let's get to carbon dioxide, because as, uh, as men that um, keep cattle, yes. you're clearly in Mrs Carrie Johnson's sights because your cows, apparently, who eat all this grass, are producing methane and goodness knows what else. Um, and yet I've heard a counter-argument, which is that sheep and cattle that graze grass and graze grass short means that grass wants to regenerate. And to do that, of course, it needs this thing that with some are calling a poison, but actually we've needed forever, called carbon dioxide. I mean, have you worked out you guys, where we are with this in reality? Well, I think, I think you, the second part of what you just said is exactly what's right. We, uh, people have been slightly misled about the whole methane thing, I'm afraid. And you talked earlier on about the Australian trade deal and things like yes. that. Now, why would people buy in food that takes up more, you know, has a bigger carbon footprint than food that can be produced in this country? You know, that's, that's why would you buy in like that? Well, why would you do a trade deal that actually forces you to raise your carbon footprint, if that's the case? And we know that, I mean, agriculture is the only industry that actually can produce, you know, can actually have a better carbon footprint than it doesn't. You know, we're, we're very much misunderstood. So you're saying there's a contradiction here. That on the one hand, the Prime Minister wants to reduce CO2 in, in all ways. Yeah, exactly. But on the other, he wants trade deals all, out, all around the world with goods being shipped and forth. Exactly. Yeah, I get that. I get right. that. No, no, there is a contradiction there. It's the lamb guys, I think, that are more, most concerned about the Australia trade deal. They're concerned about 
you know, lamb meat coming over in large quantities. But isn't there an argument that as British farmers, you can sell beef or lamb that is of higher quality and therefore get a better price for it? We, we definitely have higher quality and more consistent quality. But uh, when you get, people will buy on price at the same time. So if, you, if, if there is cheaper products on the supermarket shelf versus ours, it will certainly put pressure on the price yes. we, we get. So that, that is obviously our immediate worry. That, and uh, we don't have any, we don't have any, we, we have no safety net to fall back to, given that on our basic payment, which was an income support system for farmers, has been done away with. And so far, what we're being offered, you basically wouldn't buy a school meal for a child with what we've been offered of a difference. Well, I mean, look, the European system of basically paying people to own land wasn't sustainable in the long term. It wasn't going to last forever, I don't think. Do you? I agree with that. Yeah, yes, yeah. I agree with that. And it's not going to survive as it was. No. Just, I, I must just ask you finally, because it's important. You know, when it came to Brexit, the farming industry was literally split down the middle. Mm. It was 50-50. Half voted remain, half voted leave. From what I could make out, the big barley barons of East Anglia were all remain. Um, livestock people tended to be much more mixed. mixed. Mm. How's Brexit worked for you? And what do we need to do to make it better? I think, in fairness, it's far too early to say how Brexit has worked for us. Because, as you've already said, there's trade deals being done at the moment. That obviously there's a lot of propaganda being talked about. The government say they're going to be not, not important, won't damage farming. We think it's possible to do. We have, as you've said, seen our basic payment being done away with. Yeah. It's going to be replaced with something that certainly farmers are not going to get nearly... They had a, a pot of money. That pot of money is going to be spread among a number of sectors, maybe even the fishing sector. So we're not going to get as much money. So we're not going to have we are not going to have that safety net. The third thing we are um, the, as we don't have like the prices, the, inflation is rising all the time. So so we are under pressure for farmers to continue to produce food. At, uh, at and that would be the case in or in or outside the EU, I'm guessing. But I mean, inflation is. A that's right. Yeah. So that's, that, that's David's just made the points. Really, the problem is we're in a period. The jury's out on Brexit. We're in a period of great uncertainty and change as well. And yep. the inflation problems that we're getting at the moment are going to cause you know farmers to quit. And the pressures on the industry at the moment will mean that there's less food is produced in this country. And you've got to say it was an election promise that we would not be importing food that wasn't produced to our standards. Yep. And, it, and that's actually going to happen just for some trade deal. You know, uh, the English uh, consumer is our, is, you know, is, is our marketplace. Yeah. 60 million consumers on our doorstep. You know, how, how many are we going to sell to in Australia and New no, Zealand? No. How is that going to work? Well, Tell me, please. Well, I can promise you I will go on buying high-end, high-quality, British farm-produced lamb and beef. And gentlemen, thank you, thank you both thank you for joining us. And give them a hand, please. Now it's time for a bit of uh, debate with the audience, I think, and it'll start with one-on-one, -on -one, but you can all join in, you really, really can. Yes, it's the barrage, the farage part of this, where I don't know what you're going to ask, but I'm going to ask Sasha to ask me a question. Good evening. Cheers, Nigel. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, demand for housing in Brixham and Torbay is insane. Local people and some Brixham councillors are opposed to development outside of our agreed neighbourhood development plan. Are we fighting a losing battle with big business and government? Will local needs be ignored at, 
in favour of second homes, government housing quotas and Airbnb? Yeah, there are, I mean, there's a lot, lot of factors there. The biggest factor with housing, which nobody else ever talks about, because it's all too difficult, too awkward, is that our population has exploded since the year 2000. Our population is up by about 8 million people since 2000. And there is one very major reason for that. But, of course, we're not allowed to talk about it, because, goodness gracious me, that would be dreadful, wouldn't it? You know, mass immigration mass immigration into the country of generally very young people who've had quite a lot of children accounts for nearly 90% of the population rise. We need to build a new dwelling every four minutes in Britain, every four minutes, just to deal with current levels of migration. So, look, the fact is we're going to have to accept more houses all over the country, right, for that reason. However, the southwest pro the Southwest's problem is, is rather more acute, and that is that the wealth gap between London and the rest of the country has just got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, ever since quantitative easing, all the things government have done, people with assets since 2008 have made money on levels that, I mean, it's, it's almost difficult to believe. So for them to come and buy a fisherman's cottage in Brixham or Padstow or wherever it is, I mean, it's pocket money. It's pocket money to them. So for local people, it's made it impossible. And it's a real problem to deal with because some of these, and Brixham's not yet, thank goodness, but some of these southwest villages literally become ghost towns in winter when the people from Chelsea or Islington or whatever it is aren't here for their holidays and nobody from Airbnb. I was in Mevergizzi last weekend, not too far down the coast from here, and they've got a new policy where the new builds that are taking place in the town, the first offer is to people who are local with, a, re with, with a, you know, a record of living locally and paying council tax. And I do think, I do think, unless we're going to live in a society where the rich are able, through their own free choice, to literally destroy communities, local government, and this is not about parliament, this is about local government, needs to make sure all new builds have a priority for local people at prices that are reasonable. And I believe in that very, very strongly indeed. I really do. When they build these houses, they're so expensive that local people can't actually afford them. They say that they're going to put in all this infrastructure, but they're putting um, housing on places that have been green, that have been holiday camps. I know, I know. They're just, and they're saying they want to be green. Sasha, I know, I know. The irony, of, the, the irony, well, we had it with trade deals a moment ago. We have it with housing. There can be two housing markets. There can be a housing market where the price is just for locals and a housing market for outsiders. It is possible to have two housing markets. They do it in the Netherlands. You know, it can be done. Sasha, thank you very much indeed. Let's move on to Will with the second question. Hi there, Nigel. Well, hello. So, uh, my question to you is, if you were Home Secretary, uh, uh. What, would you <laughs> Sorry. what would you do about the migrant crisis? End it. <laughs> Firstly, by leaving the European Convention on Human Rights. We didn't complete Brexit fully. We're still subject to the judgments of a court in Strasbourg. And because we're signed up to that, activist lawyers stop virtually every deportation, even people who've committed rape and murder that we try to deport, and they get them to the airport at Heathrow, and activist lawyers, you know, are there in the High Court in London. We can't be part of the ECHR. We don't need lessons from Europe 
about fair play and justice. We've had it since Magna Carta. We've done it rather better than they've done. As far as the channel's concerned, and I've been, I mean, I've been pushing this story since March 2020. I've been out repeatedly in the English Channel, making videos, posting on YouTube, elsewhere. GB News last week was the only news channel covering what was going on in the English Channel and predicting the numbers. The Australians turned the boats round and sent people back to Indonesia. Unless we do that, this will not end. And I sense that across the whole of the country, this is, this is now becoming one of the biggest issues in British politics. We are a fair and decent people. We've always given refugee status to those in genuine trouble. What we cannot abide are vast numbers of undocumented young males arriving on the shingle in Kent uh, and, 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 and being given uh, to about housing, you know, four-star hotels and all the rest of it. Not only is it costing all of you as taxpayers too much money, it poses, and Liverpool shows us this, a major security threat to our country, and they'd better deal with it. P.D.Q. One more. I would love to do this for hours, but I've only got time for one more in this segment. Eileen's got a question for me. Hello, Nigel. Hello. Nigel, Nigel, if you could go back in time, would you change anything that you have done or regretted? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's one or two private things I might have regretted, Eileen, but I'm not going to share those with you. Um, <laughs> do you know... <laughs> well, there's nobody else here can't say the same, is there? So, do you know, I made a big decision. In the late 1990s, I made a very big decision that was completely life-changing and very much to my own detriment. In many, many ways, I just felt the whole political system in Britain had gone rotten. They, they weren't seeing the wood for the trees that we'd lost something precious. We'd lost our independence, our ability, through those we vote for, through that exercise at elections, to be the masters of our own destiny. And I took the view, Eileen, that our forebears, and we've just remembered them, haven't we, on Remembrance Sunday, that our forebears had given so much so that we and the rest of Europe could be free, that I was damned if I was just going to stand aside and let a bunch of gutless career politicians give all that away to this emerging superstate in Brussels that I, that I believe wasn't just bad for us, but bad for the rest of Europe too. Were there things I did, said, along that journey that I might have done better? Of course there were, as there are with all of our lives. But do I regret, actually, I think being the person that got this debate moving and going against a massive tide against me of all the political parties, all the trade unions, all the big businesses, all the newspapers, all the broadcasters. And it was a blooming hard uphill slog for all those years. Do I regret doing that? Do I, hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> OK. We're going to take a break now, and then we're going to come back for the, the best segment of the Farrar Show. Of course, in a moment, with some fishermen, it's going to be Talking Pints. It really is. Thanks, guys.
Well, it's Talking Pints, and normally we open the GB News pub, but today it's the Brixham Conservative Club, and I'm joined by two local fishermen, experienced skippers, Alan Scales, Mike Sharp. Welcome to Talking Pints. Great to see you here. Cheers. This evening. Cheers. Now, before we start talking about the pros and cons of fishing and Brexit and what it means, there is one benefit, clear benefit to fishing. As members of the European Union, we were not recognised as being a country that had tuna at all. We were banned from landing any commercially, and even anglers were forbidden from going out and targeting tuna with rod and line. Well, let me just show off a little bit here, right? This was me last Saturday out off the Edderstone, not too far away from here. Show the pictures, please. And there I am, onto a tuna. That's a big 80-pound class test rod. I'm 57. I think I'm 27. I think this stuff is really easy. Um, and you can see that rod's going like crazy. That fish is going like mad. And we had just the most unbelievable day. My brother, myself and my nephew. Um, and we landed nine. Nine bluefin tuna brought to the side of the boat between £200 and £400, tagged and released. So there's one benefit of Brexit. There are 15 angling boats in the southwest now registered to take people out. And ca- oh, there it is. And there's the tuna beside the boat, or one of them. Anyway, uh, you know, they're serious fish. And this for the southwest, this for the southwest, you know, in angling alone, let alone landing fish in the market here in Brixham and Newland, this on its own is at least one benefit of Brexit. Now, after I'd been out for the day fishing, guess where I went? To the pub. To the pub. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what fishing folk do. And I wanted to talk to you guys over a drink. You know, honestly, I want to hear, you know, when the referendum came along, kind of 90% of the fishing industry voted Brexit. Yep. And, you know, you'd seen enough of the common fisheries policy. We met on the River Thames. Yeah. The battle against Bob Geldof that took place before the referendum. He did us a power of good, didn't he, he really? Did. That day, he was so blooming rude to all you guys. Where are we now? Where are we now? Come on, where are we now? Has the Brexit... I mean, fishing... Is fishing a little bit better with Brexit, or is there more to do? Uh, I don't think it's down to Brexit, but fishing is better. Uh, I think we've learned to live with uh, Covid. That's, that's what's happened. Covid has, has changed things more than Brexit. Has uh, it? It's at the moment. Yeah. At the moment. Yeah. In the short term. Uh, in the long term, uh, we still live every day with the worry of France closing our borders for to your exporting. Products. To your 80% of our fish is exported. Um, we don't know when we sail for a seven or eight day trip if our fish is going to be sold when we come in because they can suddenly close the borders with no notice and that should never the european union which we are now no part of so they should be looking after their own and stopping them doing these threats it's also from ports like this that we've seen the scallop wars isn't it with some quite aggressive yeah you know i mean quite some very aggressive behavior yeah well, i've been there i've seen it you've been there I've seen it. i've been to see it. I, I went there and i didn't go back they and stopped yet, me, I got rid of a boat and didn't go back. And yet, there are French boats, and I mentioned this earlier to your local MP, Anthony, there are French boats fishing up to within six miles of Brixham Harbour. So it's all the wrong way around, isn't it? It always has been. It's, we're not allowed inside the 12 mile. Yes. They can fish into our six mile. 
Um, that's always been the historical right that they apparently had. But the, why we haven't got historical right in their waters is because there's no fish inside their 12 miles. Because they knackered it. It's all inside our waters. So that's why they're fishing up to our beach and they would come right into the beach if they could. Do you feel... <laughs> Do you feel the promises the Prime Minister made on the fisheries deal were wrong? He promised us a lot. He promised us six to 12 mile they would be out, which for me would have been, well, for the fleet would have been fantastic because there's a big breeding area inside, inside the 12 mile limit. Yeah. So at the moment we are, we still got them fishing. At, at, you know, um, I was really hoping, not just the French, just the Belgians, fishing to, fish to the six miles. So I was really hoping that But you've that, got more quota? What we got? If you're a pelagic owner, the most valuable fish owners in, in the UK, you've got a little bit more quota. We've got, haven't got any more. He doesn't. He hasn't made a blind bit of difference no. on quota on our day-to-day -day running. No. It's, so, so what do you want to see? What, what needs in, to happen? In five in years' year? time, transition is over. Yes. They're all kicked out. The big issue at the moment, because you're talking pressure stock species, where you've got your cod and your Dover sole, your place. Yeah. Bricks market tomorrow, and there'll be 40 different species of fish sold. All are not precious, they're not precious stock species. So the UK and Europe have got thousands of tons to fish in each other's waters. The French, the Europeans, sorry, caught their tonnage in the UK waters in July. They're still fishing. Yeah. No one's yeah. doing anything about it. The English play by the rec, play by the play ball. So and but I think in five years' time they're gonna come along and say, well, we've caught all this fish. We need this more fish. It's a, it's, they've always done it. It's a bargaining tool. For so them. we could in five years' time, or four years' time as it now is, we could get a British government that says, right, this hasn't worked. You know, we yeah. gave you too much. You've taken the mickey yes. out of it. And we are going to reclaim the 12. Definitely. 12 yes. miles Definitely. exclusively. And between 12 and 200, or 12 of the median line, would operate like Norway or Iceland. Because they do it very, very yeah. well and very, very efficient. Yeah, but they police it better. And they, oh, the Norwegian Navy, if you're mm. breaking the rules, you're impounded yeah, at the point of the Your license is gone, you're I right. Mean, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. If we do that, the danger is they close their markets to us. That is the danger. Very, very much of a danger. Um, but... It's not France, it's, France is not the only place we can sell fish to. No. We sell a lot to Spain, Italy, all around the world. It's the borders of France is our problem. It's not, the, it's not the selling on a French market. Uh, I mean, the French don't particularly like all our fish. They like some, had but they, they about, like small, undersized fish. Had you thought about using illegal dinghies to send the fish out? <laughs> I mean, that might work. Why don't we eat more fish in this country? Uh, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. We're an island. I mean, you... you... And you were saying sort of 40 species of fish will be in the yeah. market then and tomorrow you morning. Can go around, you can grow, go around the world and fish, eat fish anywhere, but the best fish in the world is off the south coast of England. And that, yeah. I'm not just saying that because it's me. It is. You can get a crab from caught from Salcombe. It's the best crab. You can get king crab. Keep all that. Honestly, you can. <laughs> the, the best fish is off our coast, and we just need a bit more help to... But the British consumer seems to have lost touch with fish. I, th I think, same again, coming back to COVID, yeah. it's because the market's virtually closed, the smaller fishermen had to find some way of earning a living, otherwise they'd have been uh, bankrupt. Because so the, re the restaurants weren't buying. Because yeah. the restaurants, yeah. Yeah. They, sold, yeah. they sold direct to the public. They found a way of marketing their own fish and selling direct to the public. And I think with education, they've actually started to eat different species of fish now. And that's going to be a good thing. Yeah. We've always, we, we eat 
virtually everything we catch on different types yeah. of fish yeah. at sea for our lunch and whatever. And it's just education. And you can't, as Michael said, you can't get any better than the fish off this coast. So if I come back here in 10 years' time to Brixham, how healthy is this, is this port going to be? The fish is never a problem. I mean, the, the fish, the last 10 years, we've had increasing quota, increasing quota. That's because the 50-50... Because the stocks have been better. Because we have designed our own nets with bigger meshes, yep. but that's only for the UK fleet. That's not for the French and the Belgian fleet. So we, um, since we started doing that and been behaving the, each year, the science, not us, the scientists are saying, it needs an increase, it needs an increase. So it you needs catch fish, you catch fish for so We, we changed our nets to But you to care about conservation, is definitely, that yeah. definitely, definitely. And the scientists and why, agree with what yeah. we're doing. It's, it's and, not all the where did that change come from? Where did that change come from? In cooperation with the scientists? Yes. Yes, but it, it came from us initially. We yeah. decided, as fishermen, uh, to get uh, with the trawl makers and find a way of conserving our stocks instead of decimating it. And it's worked? Mm. Yes, definitely. definitely. Well, you, you've got the scientists saying it needs an increase. And that's not just oversold, that's placed. That's, yeah. Also, most most of the all of the precious stock species. And what about back to these tuna? We're going to finish up on tuna where I started. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I promise you, you know, anglers coming to ports like Brixham yeah. and Plymouth and, and all along, you know, we will spend a lot of money in towns if we got the chance to go out and catch. But what happens tuna? if the Gulf Stream changes back to where it was and comes off west coast of Ireland? You're going to go to west coast of Ireland catching the tuna? It doesn't come up the channel? Well, truth of it is, over 30 years. I've spent a lot of money travelling all over the world mm -hmm. to chase tuna, billfish, all those things. Now I can do it in this country. Mm. Long may it last. Oh, I'll I mean, say. they've been there for a few years, haven't they? Yeah, they've been six, seven years. Every year it's got, it's got bigger and bigger. And we're not talking, we're talking hundreds of thousands of fish. Hun yeah. yeah, hundreds of, of thousands. thousands of Think about that, guys. Hundreds of thousands of bluefin tuna yeah. are out there now as yeah. we speak. It's incredible. But the, the, the French, and, and French commercial catch it off Jersey and Guernsey and land it on their country for years. So the French and Spanish will land 24,000 tonnes in market. Yeah. yeah. If you guys could land a few... We can catch and release. Well, the anglers are, no. but if you guys were able to have a modest tuna quota, how much we're, difference we're, would that We're allowed make? to catch one fish. One fish. One fish a week, per year. A trip. Per a trip. trip. But we fish on the sea, so you don't catch the tuna because you're fishing in mid-waters. Yes. For the yes. Pelagic, so. Mm. If you rigged a boat, design a boat it's for more, that. More we, if we catch one by accident. All right, fine. Guys, keep fishing, keep fighting. We're all behind the fishing community here, aren't we, in Brixton? Now. And on that theme, on a seafaring theme, we're going to go out with the old gaffer's shanty crew who will sing us out here at Brixham to the end of the programme. So please give them a very warm welcome. Hey! We're making Rattling round and stamp and go, rattling winches all. 
Rattling round and stamp and go, rattling winches all. But now he's getting old and grey, rattling winches all. Them girls, they seem to get away, rattling winches all. Rattling round and stamp and go, rattling winches all. Rattling round and stamp and go, rattling winches all. Just one more rattle and then be late. Rattling winches all. We've rattled this gear enough today. Rattling winches all. Rattling round and stamp and go, rattling winches all. Rattling round and stamp and go, rattling winches all. Rattling round and stamp and go, rattling winches all. Rattling round and stamp and go, rattling winches all. Thank you so much. That was great.